Hi, this is Very Bad Words, the podcast about swearing and taboo language. I'm Matt Fiddler. Last week, we played some short excerpts of Rabbi Phyllis Summer talking about death and grief to tease the concept of euphemisms for this week's episode. The reason I had her on, besides being a rabbi, is because of the experience she had with her son, Sam. Sam was a kindergartner, and he came home with pains in his legs, and we took him to the doctor several times, and um, eventually he was diagnosed with AML, acute myeloid leukemia. And um, he had a whole set of treatment, and everything seemed really good. He was doing really well, and then he relapsed from the leukemia um, and had uh, more chemo and a bone marrow transplant. And um, following the transplant, he did pretty well, and then eventually the leukemia relapsed again, um, and he died in December of 2013. He was eight years old. So this is obviously the worst thing that can happen to a parent. It's an extremely hard thing to deal with that I just can't even imagine. But what's kind of strange is that it seems to be even harder for other people to deal with it. And I think about the language people use to comfort those people who had a loved one die. You know, they say, sorry for your loss. They're in a better place now. Your loved one passed on. But they rarely say the words dead or death or dying. People are so, so uncomfortable. They're so terrified to say the wrong thing. They're so terrified to see themselves reflected in you. They're so full of their own understandings and thinkings about how this could have happened to someone like that they are looking at, that they now know, or to themselves. And they just don't know what to say. And so they end up defaulting to all these sort of platitudes and things like that. But death is an inevitable part of life. We don't like to deal with it, for sure. It represents the end of an era. You can never get that person back. So maybe using phrases that imply the person could come back makes it easier? I think we're afraid because a little bit is a holdover of the sort of magical thinking. And this is the example that that I often use. If you ever um, are talking about somebody who has died, I don't know if you've ever done this, but somebody might turn to the person next to you and say, oh, did you hear? He died. And you whisper that phrase because it's almost like this magical idea that if I say that word out loud, that somehow it will, you know, draw near to me the forces of death, and I too could be touched by that. I don't necessarily believe that everybody really thinks that exactly specifically when they're saying it, but we've kind of created a culture where we're, we push death away, right? Who would want that? So I think that not talking about it directly helps some people to feel that they can push that idea away a little bit more, that they don't want perhaps their children and then themselves to really think about that inevitability. In this episode of Very Bad Words, we're digging into euphemisms to try to figure out why we don't just say what we mean. After last week's minicast, several listeners called in and left voicemails about their feelings around death and the euphemisms that often accompany it. The first two clips come from callers who work at hospice and deal with death every day. 
am very familiar with all of the euphemisms you shared on your mini-cast, and they certainly serve a purpose in terms of helping people kind of work their way through the grief of what is about to happen, but I also think that it's usually the people around a dying loved one who are using euphemisms rather than the person who is dying, so it's, it's a self-protection mechanism. That's the thing about grief is nobody can tell you how to do it for yourself and everybody's grief is a different journey. And dying, we can figure out, but what comes next is so unknown. It's very scary for some people and so they have to sugarcoat it. But most people who left us voicemails didn't like the sugarcoating and would rather have people be more straightforward when talking about death. Totally, I do not want to hear somebody say that they're in a better place or that flowery language just be straight i'm a catholic and i much prefer the word die to anything else they use here in our town the town paper has obituaries and i would say more than 50 percent of them say uh when to be with jesus or when to be with their lord or whatever and i almost puke when i see that death is complicated and sad and sometimes angering especially if you didn't get to say goodbye or resolve a conflict with that person. But I don't think that's why, historically, that we avoid saying things like death and dying and dead. Um, Certainly, um, people have avoided verbs like die and kill for many, many centuries, and they've used these rather vague expressions where people curl up or they go to sleep or they go on a long journey. And those are images or metaphors that people have drawn on. In, and this is not just in English either. This is across the languages of the world. This is Kate Burridge of Monash University of Australia. Been a linguist here for about 15 years. She's actually the chair of the linguistics department, holds a PhD from the University of London, and is one of the leading scholars on euphemisms. Well, euphemism is, I suppose you could describe it really as, as dealing with evasive language or avoidance language. And it sometimes goes by lovely labels like camouflage language or deodorant language. My favorite is linguistic fig leaves. But really, it's the sort of language that we use when we find we have to talk about the things that really we'd rather not talk about. It deals with taboos, uh, the usual suspects, you know, death, disease, uh, bodily functions, bodily effluvia, sex, all the sort of things that go bump in the night, if you like, for, for society. And despite what some politicians and pundits say about euphemistic language, softening language so it doesn't offend people, Kate said this kind of cloaking of language is nothing new. So indeed, euphemisms have been around for as long as human language have, at least as far as we have the evidence for that. Uh, And you'll find that uh, we have very long living euphemisms in English. We like to sleep with, for example. I mean, that has been a euphemism in English since at least the 10th century. And I think that these kind of euphemisms go back to this idea of the magical thinking that Rabbi Phyllis talked about with euphemisms surrounding death. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's it shows goes to the magical quality of words. And you know, in linguistics, we teach that uh, you know there is no necessary, no natural connection between how words sound and what they mean. But in the area of euphemism and taboo, people do really behave as if there were a very real connection between what the word 
it means and and its sound. You know, that's why people talk about nasty words and horrible words or, you know, such and such is such a nasty word, such an ugly word. I mean, poor little words, they can't help it, you know, these taboo terms. They're just assemblages of consonants and vowels like any other word, but uh, they do have a lot of power. So the idea is that euphemisms are kind of holding back the power of those words while allowing you to still talk about the subject. So the most successful euphemisms are very, very vague expressions. Maybe it's a body part, you know, below the belt body part, for example, to use a nice euphemism. You might use a word like groin, which is the sort of general area where the you know, the taboo body part is situated. But what happens, of course, with time is that next generation of speakers grow up learning the euphemism as the direct term. So it has to be replaced. So what you find is you get this ever-changing chain of vocabulary replacements. It's something Steven Pinker referred to as the euphemism treadmill. Euphemism treadmill, eh? Well, here's Steven Pinker. He's a professor of psychology and conducts research on language and cognition at Harvard University. And he coined the term euphemism treadmill. The euphemism treadmill is the term that I gave to a phenomenon in which a word is seen to be prejudicial or tainted or negative or unfair. And a new word is brought in that seems to lack the negative emotion of the old one. But as time passes, that word itself becomes tainted and a replacement is brought in to uh, substitute for that word. And it goes on and on. The words change over time, but the meanings and emotions behind the word does not, which keeps the treadmill going. There are many examples of how this works. I first became aware of this when popularity of the term African-American in the 1990s replaced the term black, which itself replaced the term that I grew up with, uh, namely Negro. Now, Negro today feels not just old-fashioned, but almost offensive. But of course, it wasn't through most of the uh, 20th century. Martin Luther King referred to the the state of American Negroes. There's an organization called the United Negro College Fund. It was a perfectly respectable term in its day. But in the late 60s, it was replaced by black before being replaced by African-American. And of course, before Stephen's time, the term colored person was the norm. You could refer to someone as being colored, and it didn't necessarily mean you were some no-good racist asshole. Even when I was a child, the term colored man or colored woman was deeply offensive. And remarkably, starting in the 90s, the term uh, person of color became completely respectable, even though colored man or colored woman is deeply racist. So what it shows is that the actual literal content of the words doesn't matter. Even though when a term is introduced, it's often accompanied by some rationale as to why it's more accurate. For example, when the term black replaced Negro, the idea was, well, if you call European Americans white, then by symmetry, by fairness, by equality, you should call African Americans black, black, white perfectly equivalent terms. Now, even at the time, the argument was suspicious because Negro is just Spanish for black. Then in the 90s, African-Americans seemed more accurate because, of course, uh, African-Americans don't literally have black skin. And also, it seems vaguely racist to refer to someone by a physical trait. But the point is that it really doesn't matter. All of these semantic justifications are beside the point. It's simply that when, as long as there is prejudice, in this case, as long as there's racism, the concept will color the word. And this is why there aren't any good slurs for white people in this country, because 
It's not the word, but the attitude behind it. I mean, check out the disdain from this fictional character from one of my old favorite TV shows, 30 Rock, when they're in the sensitivity training class explaining the things that people shouldn't say in the workplace. What else can we not call each other? How about sweaty greaseball? Oh, very good. That's highly offensive. Person of color. I guess if you say it like that. Now, I'm not sure if they were trying to make a point or just being funny, you know, maybe both, but it shows that the words themselves aren't bad, but the concepts are. This guy associates any word related to black people as a bad word, tainting a polite phrase. And while it's much less acceptable to have disdain for people because they have different skin color, it still seems to be open season for anyone that we think is dumb. The terms moron and idiot and imbecile, which began as technical terms, they were moron was a, a Greek word, became general terms of abuse that you would hurl at anyone you thought was contemptibly stupid. And so it would be inconceivable to refer to someone who is mentally retarded as a, as a moron or an imbecile, uh, although that was not uncommon a century ago. But then the term retarded, which literally just means slow, was introduced as a respectful and polite term for people with mental disabilities, cognitive disabilities, that is. But then it was used as an insult by children, and now retarded is seen as a, an offensive term. Another example is spastic. When I was a child, it was even used as a term of abuse. Uh, you spaz, meaning a clumsy or klutzy person, and it would be inconceivable to refer to someone with cerebral palsy today as spastic, although that too was common and respectful uh, a century ago. So why do we so often ride this euphemism treadmill? Is the euphemism treadmill, is it inevitable in a society like ours? I think it's not so much the sheer diversity, but it, it really is the attitude of a desire for respect and for the elimination of prejudice. Ironically, it's oblivious to the actual phenomena of prejudice, which will taint the word as opposed to the word freshening up the concept. Uh, I think it depends on a kind of linguistic determinism, a kind of hypothesis that if only you change the way people speak, you'll change the way they think. Now, it's not. this is not to deny that respectful terms have a role to play in reducing prejudice and animus, but it's certainly been naive to think that merely by changing the term that that would suffice to uh, eliminate the prejudice. We're going to take a real quick break and return with Steven Pinker and the rest of our guests as we continue to talk about the benefits and pitfalls of euphemizing things that we don't like to talk about. We were making up words to make us all feel better. We should be mindful of the fact that linguistic passions do change. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Words. I'm Matt Fiddler. Before the break, we were talking about something that Steven Pinker coined as the euphemism treadmill, where we substitute one offensive term with a term that seems less offensive. Then after a while, that one seems just as bad, so we find another, etc., etc. Like colored person to going to Negro, to black, to African American. But it's not stopping any actual racism or racial resentment. But Steven Pinker says that the euphemism treadmill can stop. And when that happens, it suggests that something important is happening with the subject of those euphemisms. 
it's a suggestion that the terms have not been tainted by by negative prejudice. And that happened in particular in another case of a change in terms of racial minorities. The term oriental was quite common when I was a child. It is now considered offensive to refer to a, with the people that we now call Asian or Asian American as oriental, even though there's nothing prejudicial about the term oriental simply means from the East. It became associated with negative stereotypes of uh, Asian Americans and it, it was replaced. But Asian and Asian American have themselves not been replaced, which suggests that perhaps there's been a, a decline in racism directed against Asian Americans. Perhaps that's true. If you're an Asian American, I would like to hear if you've experienced that or not. Give me a call, 331-BAD-WORD, and let me know. Do you think racism towards Asians in this country has declined? And maybe that's why Asian American has stuck around for a long time? Well, whether that's happening or not, his point remains. The euphemism treadmill continues to turn because it's trying to find better words for a sensitive subject. Once the subject is no longer sensitive, neither is the use of language surrounding the subject. So the euphemism treadmill stops. And of course, it's important to remember that not everyone is aware of the effects of the euphemism treadmill. And if a person is late to the game on the latest lingo, again, it doesn't mean that they're the horrible racist people who, have, uh, say, from a previous generation who quite innocently use a term that was respectful in their era should not be attacked as racist simply because they're not up with the latest linguistic fashion. So the habit of branding people who use the word, especially older people who use the word oriental to refer to Asians and say, you're a racist if you talk that way, that can only be harmful because uh, Increasing the number of people that you call racist is not uh, a, a route to a, a better society. So we should be mindful of the fact that, uh, that, that linguistic fashions do change. The Chinaman who peed on my rug, I can't go give him a bill. The Chinaman is not the issue here, dude. I'm talking about drawing a line in the sand, dude. Across this line, you do not. Also, dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. But again, we should we have to be historically conscious and not assuming that history consists of a replacement of bad people by good people, but to acknowledge that standards change, that what is acceptable in one era can be unacceptable in another. And that it's, itself is a, a, a realization that allows us to criticize ourselves for, for some of the unstated standards that we may take for granted, and that gives a, a more accurate view of the nature of moral progress than just assuming that there were a bunch of stupid, evil, racist idiots in the past and uh, were more enlightened in the present. But what about the topics of sex, excretion, and handicaps and diseases? Will these subjects that are almost universally taboo ever be able to escape this euphemism treadmill? In terms for the, uh, the disabled, We've seen a transition from crippled, which used to be a perfectly respectful term. There were, there were hospitals for crippled children, but crippled started to be seen as prejudicial, as implying some kind of uh, shortcoming or deficit or inferiority. And so it was replaced by handicapped, which is then replaced by disabled. And then there are terms like physically challenged and differently abled that are often used. And of course, terms for excretion and sexuality, the, the classic taboo words, there have been um, massive euphemism treadmills. The um, 
uh, four-letter words, as they were said. I guess you could say them on the podcast, like shit and piss. Uh, where, <laughs> we then have uh, euphemisms like toilet. Now, toilet was uh, comes from the French word toile for cloth, and it literally just meant bodily care, which we still have in, in expressions like eau de toilette, toilet water, or a toiletry kit. But toilet has become a term for, uh, for the place you, you excrete. That was replaced by bathroom, even though one doesn't necessarily take a bath in a bathroom. So you get it, right? There are topics that we have to talk about sometimes. Sex, death, disabilities, taking a shit. But we usually don't like to talk about these things directly. It's not fun to think about certain people having sex or dying. And we don't like talking about other people's physical problems because... Perhaps it reminds us that it can happen to anyone, maybe us. And certainly, no one likes to think about other people going to the bathroom. Well, I mean, I assume most people don't. But my question is, does this do us a disservice to avoid talking about things that we need to talk about sometimes? Which brings me back to Rabbi Phyllis. Her child died, and there's no pussyfooting around that reality that she has to face every day. She wishes people would be more direct when talking about death with her or her surviving children. Even when someone would say, when you lose a child, right? And I, I, he is so not lost. I didn't lose him. I know right where he is, right? It, it almost implies a carelessness. Like I, I lost him at the mall, right? And then I could find him again. So that was one of the ones that I heard all the time. And I even find myself, people say it all the time. I'm so sorry for your loss. And I think talking about your loss is very different than actually a person who's lost, right? But there was this sense of that all the time. And even, even frankly, when people say, oh, he passed away, I find that to be so difficult for me. I know for lots of people, that's not difficult. But for me, that's really difficult because it implies this very easy passing through of the world. And I don't see death in that way. It really is a person who is here and then who has died and their body has ceased to function and their presence is no longer in our world. But passing makes it feel very soft and gentle. And I, at that time, and even now still, I don't Maybe it's because I don't want to feel that soft and gentle about this. Death is something that's hard and sad and difficult. And I think we try really hard to push that all away. And this attitude around direct language, especially dealing with tragedy, started before her son died from cancer. I wouldn't even say having a child who was dying is what started it, but even having a child who was living through the cancer world, right? All the euphemistic phrases that are used in that community about being a warrior and fighting cancer and sort of putting all of that language on this this little person, basically, who we were just, you know, making him go to the hospital and putting medicine in him, but we talked about him like he was a hero or, you know, all those phrases that just felt like we were making up words to make us all feel better. So I, I started early on to be uncomfortable with all of that. And then, yeah, I think um, I really started to notice the way that I said things and other people said things and how it affected me, how it made me feel, and how it affected my kids. Phyllis has three other kids, and the messages they'd get, especially the youngest one, would be confusing to him. Kids don't use that euphemistic language until they're older, so... Using it to a child isn't protecting them from pain. People would say things like, oh, you lost your brother. And he would say, oh, well, let's go find him. 
He was only three years old when Sam died. And so I started to realize what an impact these words were having on the other people in my house, right? My daughter was seven. And I realized that if I started to talk about it in these sort of really gentle, cloudy ways, it wouldn't, it was hard enough for me to understand the finality of it all that he, that, you know, my kid was dead. And, but for my little people to be able to say, um, yeah, you know, how do you explain that, you know, you're not going to see him walk back through the door. You're not going to, you're never going to play together again. And some of those phrases really kind of leave the door open to, oh, okay, we can fix this. We can change this. This is going to, it's all going to, it was hard enough to explain it. But then when I started to hear those phrases, I realized that it was, um, I needed to be really careful about the way that I, the way that I spoke to them. But it's not just how it affects children. Those euphemistic terms, while perhaps making it easier for those expressing sympathy, might actually hurt the grieving process for some. It hampers the, for many people, the idea of grief and of living with grief that someone died and we grieve for that. But if we're cloaking it in, oh, you know, that person's in a better place, that person is with someone else in a place some would say heaven, right? Oh, you know, he's with the person he loved in heaven or whatever those phrases are. Or you hear God needed him more. Um, those kinds of things are, are hard for someone who's grieving to hear because then they imply that that you don't have a right to be sad, that you shouldn't have those feelings. So I think that sometimes taking, stripping away all that extra fabric of, of euphemism lets people who are grieving sort of just be in that raw, painful space and not have to clean it up to make someone else feel better. I reached out to several psychologists, including a social worker who was there when my elderly aunt died of Alzheimer's disease recently. And they all said, everyone is different in how they handle grief. And that euphemisms around death are usually for the person saying them, not for the person they're being said to. But also... Some people like them. They prefer nice terms like passing away or crossing over or being united with God. It all depends on how they are raised, their religious beliefs, and previous experiences with death. But of course, not all euphemisms have such lofty motivations. Here's euphemism expert Kate Burridge again. There are also euphemisms uh, that are more underhand. I mean, no euphemism will tell, tell it as it is. In a sense, all euphemisms are dishonest, but there are some that sort of drip with dishonesty, if I could put it that way. So there are, you know, those that we associate with political language and uh, um, w- with warfare. Examples would be something like, um, oh, we had one recently in my university where we would talk about um, uh, voluntary separations. That's wait, voluntary separation? You know, there might be a restructure that's going on in a um, in a workplace, but instead of sacking people, of course, you don't do that sort of thing. You downsize, you right-size, you, you do an RIF, a reduction in force, and you do that through targeted voluntary separations or involuntary resignations, um, all of this sort of language. The sort of language that uh, turns, uh, you know, d- death of human beings into collateral damage or friendly fire, surgical strikes, soft skin targets. This sort of euphemism, this kind of underhand, dishonest euphemism that has um, led to, I think, the deterioration of the term euphemism 
itself, because a lot of people, you know, when you talk about euphemism, they think immediately of this sort of language. Because this is the kind of language used by people doing usually horrible, but perhaps necessary things to another person, while trying to convince themselves it's not so bad. Perhaps allows them to get away with the dirty deeds in ways that they couldn't. I mean, nobody's fooled by this language, of course, but uh, I think it does make the perpetrator able to to carry out these things. So in a way, it, it protects them. I mean, it's, it's George Orwell talked about you know the sort of language that turns. What did he say? Oh, it's such a beautiful quote. Um, of course, Orwell has a lot to say around language, but I think Kate Burge was going after this one. Quote. Political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemisms, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. End quote. And this, I believe, is the same general feeling of doublespeak that some complain about political correctness. Critics of political correctness feel like it's dishonest speech, similar to involuntary downsizing and the like. I certainly think that there's an overlap between, you know, euphemism and what people call political correctness. So I've really characterized, I suppose, euphemism as being disguise or camouflage language, but some euphemisms are actually deliberately provocative. That's the best way to get the attention of the reader or the or the, the listener. And I think that's true with a lot of politically correct language, that these are, are euphemistic indeed, because they also draw attention to themselves. So they try to get people, I suppose, to focus on the sorts of prejudices that underlie language. So if you use something like he stroke she or him and her, which is kind of... I mean, it's clumsy, isn't it, when you're you're speaking to have to use both pronouns, and in a way it gets people to think about these things. So Kate acknowledges that euphemisms are fundamentally dishonest. Not lies, but not the whole truth either. So I'm going to give Kate Burridge the last word on euphemisms overall. Euphemisms are there to help us really to, to negotiate things, these things that go bump in the night, as I mentioned earlier, the things that society has trouble with. You know, what would it be like if you know, we said exactly what was on our minds and in the most explicit of terms? It would be sort of hell on earth, I think, really. So we, we lose sight of the fact that people have a lot of fun with euphemism as well. You know, in the 18th century, when, when someone came up with the miraculous picture that holds the water with the mouth downwards, that was a euphemism for vagina. Now, you can't tell me that they meant that as a real euphemism of vagina in the 18th century. That was, that was having a lot of fun. And, and when you look at the area of taboo and you look at the euphemisms that people have been coming up with over the centuries, for bawdy body parts, if I could put it that way, for male and female genitalia, we have literally thousands and thousands of expressions. Or when someone turns even, you know, something like potholes into pavement deficiencies or toothbrushes into home clerk removal implements, you know, they're having a lot of fun with the language. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Very Bad Words, and thanks to this week's guests, Kate Burridge, Phyllis Summer, and Stephen Picker. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jill Fincher, on this episode, and thank you to everyone who has contacted me via voicemail, Facebook, email, Twitter, and Instagram. I personally read and listen to every single one of your comments and feedback. Keep them coming. You are the reason why I make this show. Thanks again. See you next time on Very Bad Words. Me personally, when I die, I, I hope my old bit says he's fucking dead because he was yelling at one of his dumbass co-workers and had a heart attack or whatever the case may be. Anyway, thanks, man.